HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we explore the relationship between food and style. I knew from the start that I never wanted to, like, hot glue bread onto my body. <laughs> like, I wanted to be able to eat, enjoy it after, and I did. Food, which is so ephemeral, right? It's something that you eat and it disappears. With an image, it remains. It stays alive forever. Food and fashion align in that they're both lenses through which to look at culture, right? And they're both also tangible things we can use to express ourselves and our identities. Tune in to Meet in 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome acclaimed pitmaster Rodney Scott. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Rodney about mastering whole hog barbecue, his new cookbook, Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue, and we'll hear Rodney's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia and barbecue don't get put together all that often, but hey, it's summer, barbecue's close to my heart, and when you dig into Julia's legacy, you come up with more connections than you might expect. First off, good barbecue is all about mastering technique. It requires patience and a whole lot of practice, both of which lead to having the right touch, all things Julia promoted as critical for good cooking. Second, Julia advocated strongly for the next generation, shining a light on those up-and-comers who impressed her, as we do on this show. One person Julia encouraged is John T. Edge, food writer and founding director of the Southern Foodways Alliance. 
John T. recounts in his Julia moment back in episode 11 how Julia took an interest in his work and encouraged him early on. In turn, a decade ago, John T. took notice of today's guest writing in the New York Times about a young pitmaster and his family's slow food approach to barbecue. This introduction and article changed the pitmaster's future. And third, Julia famously advised, find something you're passionate about and keep tremendously interested in it. Someone who embraced that advice is Rodney Scott, the founder, chef, and pitmaster of Rodney Scott's Whole Hog Barbecue. Rodney, who has cooked Whole Hog Barbecue since the age of 11, spent 25 years working with his family at Scott's Variety Store and Barbecue in the small town of Hemingway, South Carolina. He's gone from working in tobacco fields on the family farm to the smokehouse in the family's business to becoming an internationally recognized authority on whole hog South Carolina-style barbecue. Having cooked in New York City, Australia, Colombia, Belize, Paris, and Uruguay, he's added restaurateur and now author to his accomplishments. In 2017, Rodney partnered with Nick Pahakis and the Pahakis Restaurant Group to open Rodney Scott's Whole Hog Barbecue in Charleston. It was soon named one of the 50 best new restaurants in America by Bon Appetit, and a year later, Rodney received a James Beard Award for Best Chef Southeast, only the second pitmaster to be recognized by the Beards. Rodney Scott's Whole Hog Barbecue opened a second location in Birmingham, Alabama, with further expansion planned, including opening later this year in Atlanta. Known for his signature vinegar-based sauce, Rodney Starr rose further after he was featured as one of four pitmasters in Netflix's Chef's Table Barbecue Season. You can listen to our interview with Chef's Table creator David Gelb in episode 27. Rodney will soon appear as a judge on Food Network's Barbecue Brawl, Flay vs. Simon, and his first cookbook, Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue, a collection of personal stories and recipes, and one of the first barbecue cookbooks written by a black pit master, was published earlier this year. He joins us today to talk about his journey and his passion for South Carolina-style barbecue. Welcome to the podcast, Rodney. Wow, thank you for having me. We're delighted you could join us. So uh, let's start with your story, because I think it's really fascinating and inspiring. And I think the new book really includes great recipes. It's even got this amazing step-by-step instructions about how to build your own whole hog barbecue pit at home, which makes it look probably easier than it is. But it also really tells your story. And so I wanted you to share with with us, in, in your own words, how, how did you become a pit master? You know, I became a pit master not in the beginning by choice, but it was my job. It was the, the, the chore that was given to me by my father. And, um, I always try to find the silver lining in everything that I do. And I found the joy in cooking the whole hog and that later on becoming a pit master. So now I'm all in love with being a pit master. (laughs) Well, that's interesting. But, but originally it wasn't like you were like, this is my dream. This is what I want to do. It was, like work originally it was definitely not my dream um uh it it was not something i thought i'd be doing my entire life but uh it started out as work and and i fell in love with it and when did it kind of because i i think people now there there's a growing mystique about it and 
that there's an art to it as much as it is required. Well, like most cooking in kitchens, a lot of heavy lifting and, and muscles as much as anything else. But do you remember the moment where you sort of, it kind of shifted between being work and heavy labor and you kind of got into the art of it? Wow. I want to think it, it, I must have been in my early 20s, around probably 26, when I started to notice how people appreciated food. And I noticed that we were doing food. We're cooking barbecue every week. And here's this one thing that I know how to do that I feel like I can reach more people with. And that's when I kind of fell in love with it. So I, I might have been maybe 25, 26 when I said that this thing can go to another level I can do the best that I can at this. This can be one of the biggest things ever for my family to get more people and to sell more barbecue. And what was that still? I I feel like it was still before John T. wrote his story and people started traveling from farther afield to, to visit your family's business in Hemingway. Yes, it was definitely before John T. wrote the story. It was about maybe six, seven years before John T. wrote the story on us in The New York Times. And what was happening at that moment? Was it just more people were appreciating the food you were cooking or or it was something not related to like who was coming to the the store and restaurant? Well, at that moment, I started to notice people were appreciating the food that we were cooking. And at that time, I was hanging out in Myrtle Beach a lot. And I remember going to this burger joint and these guys were saying they sold 10,000 burgers in, in a season in Myrtle Beach. And I'm like, well, how many pounds of meat is that? And then trying to figure that out, I said, if he sold burgers in Myrtle Beach, I can sell sandwiches in Hemingway. I can invite people from Myrtle Beach to Hemingway to eat these sandwiches. And I would constantly just carry this pork down there to let different people taste it to see what they thought. Uh, I see. And so I think it might help if you explain the origin story of even how your parents started a barbecue I don't do. I mean, do you even call it a restaurant? Because it's a little. It's definitely un, not uncommon in the South and Southern Midwest, but it's kind of a unique animal. It's not like your parents were like, "Hey, we're going to open a restaurant. And this is going to be the menu, right?" Well, my folks never really opened a restaurant. It was never called a restaurant. In the beginning, it was a general store, and with that being just a general store, we sold canned goods like sardines and and uh, sodas, and you can buy some you know, cereal off the shelf, ketchup, basic things. And the barbecue sandwiches was an extra thing on the side that my dad did on Thursdays. So every Thursday we would cook a hog and it would come off around 6 p.m. and we would sell sandwiches. And and it kind of grew from there. I see. And, and what was, was it kind of more of a community thing? I mean, because obviously, um, as we'll talk about more, doing whole hog roasting is is quite an effort, both in terms of the the muscle involved, the the technique involved, and also the time that it takes. What was is there a way, or do you have an understanding? And we'll get into what happened later. But of like, what was the motivation to do it? Was it just to feed the community and people closer to you, or was it just for the love of what it produced? And you were a smaller family, so you, if you were going to make a whole hog, you, you might as well sell it. Well, you know, we, we took the whole hog um, and we sold it at the general store in the beginning. And it was kind of a community thing that turned into a business because in that community, a lot of people celebrated with whole hog cooking. They did it for weddings, graduation, the end of the harvest season, 
everybody would kind of cook a whole hog because it fed a lot of people. So it was kind of a community thing that kind of turned into a business for us selling barbecue sandwiches on Thursdays. And do you think it it was something that your dad had just approached on instinct? It was, you know, he wanted to do it. it. It was a way to make it kind of, you could enjoy it, but then you could make some money from it. And is that, or, or, or have you never, never really gotten to the bottom of what started it? <laughs> well, well, all he said was he was selling sandwiches. And out in those rural areas, sometimes you would go to a general store and you would find him selling a hot dog or a bologna sandwich, something of that nature. And we did barbecue sandwiches. And in selling the barbecue sandwiches, the demand just kept growing. And I guess in him finding out that this is a way to make money, this is perfect for us to continue doing. And before you know it, it was from one hog to multiple hogs every week. And I guess we should say also Hemingway is quite a small, it's a town, but it's quite a small town. And that if you're, you know, there aren't a huge amount of ways to make money there. So you need to be quite scrappy and resourceful, I assume, to survive, which means having your hand at a bunch of different pies. Yes, Hemingway is definitely a small town, Um, you know. Not a lot of people, three red lights, kind of a small rural area. And uh, you had to do what you had to do to survive. Some people would ride as far as an hour to go to work just to survive in the area. Some people worked uh, locally and they would pull like double shifts at the local plants just to make a, a, a good living to survive. And I do want to ask you, because now you're based in Charleston, but before we go there, I wanted to get an understanding because um, I, I think forgot to tell you at the top of the show, I'm from Kansas City. I was raised on Kansas City barbecue where my parents used to get their cars repaired, became what is now a famous barbecue place. When I was a kid, it didn't even exist. And it was a it wasn't it would be a stretch to say it was converted from a mechanics garage to the barbecue place they weren't both happening at the same time but the aesthetic was still there so i get it but i also get that the carolina style barbecue is really different than what i grew up on in kansas city so can you kind of define however you'd like to what south carolina style barbecue is wow south carolina style barbecue is one of the most unique styles in my opinion because it's usually a whole hog. And, you know, in, in the area that I grew up in, the PD region of South Carolina, whole hogs were cooked everywhere f- for holiday parties, again, weddings and, and graduation parties. And, you know, South Carolina is just unique at doing the whole hog, kind of the same way Texas is unique, known for brisket and beef. South Carolina was known for for the pork and a different style of barbecue, which was mostly whole hog. And so the whole hog tradition, did it come out of a sort of, it was like it's celebration food. I mean, I think now people, and we've talked about this a lot on the show, like eating chicken and a whole hog and all of these things, you know, you can go to a restaurant and find that now. But 50, 100 years ago, people didn't eat as much meat. There wasn't as much available. So I'm assuming traditionally whole hog it was a couple times a year thing not a you can drive to your to your restaurant and get it whenever you like correct whole hog was a couple of times a year thing because usually i've heard so many stories of local farmers and and residents in my area where i grew up saying that they would start raising hogs in january for their christmas dinner you know 
or their Thanksgiving dinner. So they were, it was kind of a year-long process for a lot of them to, to raise a hog to celebrate at the end of the year with the family. And so now this sort of celebration food has kind of been elevated to every day or I don't, I mean, do you, I mean, I assume you serve it every day now in your, your restaurant. We absolutely serve pork and whole hog every day in our restaurant. And I feel like it is a celebration every day because in my mind, every day is a good day. (laughs) Oh, okay. Now I get the connection between your, your, your motto that you just shared. So let's go back to South Carolina style because I don't want to shortchange it because I think there's a lot of important distinctions. So all like Kansas City is tomato based and it tends to be on the sweet spot side. So tell us more about what South Carolina is based in style barbecue is based in. And also does the PD region specifically where you're from, does that have its own nuances or is, is South Carolina style pretty ubiquitous throughout the state? You know, South Carolina has a variety of uh, sauce styles in, in the state, if you will. Um, the PD region where I'm from is the Southeastern part of the state. And that's pretty much vinegar and pepper where you would use cayenne pepper, black pepper, uh, vinegar, and we use lemons to basically make our sauce. So it's a vinegar base. And when you get to the middle of the South Carolina state, it's you, you'll probably run into the mustard-based sauces. Mm-hmm. And the further you go northwest, then you would get into more of a tomato and but my region, which is that vinegar region, it's it's kind of different. A lot of people, even in North Carolina, on that side of North Carolina, I've heard so many people speak of the vinegar-based sauce and how much they love it and how much it seems to originate from the eastern part of the Carolinas. And and so it ends up creating, it's much sort of spicier than what maybe like grocery store barbecue sauces, which tend to be on the very sweet side. Exactly. It's a little bit more spicy. The vinegar sauce is a little bit more spicier than what you would find in your grocery stores. Um, It's not too sweet. It's kind of a balance where you get a little heat, but it doesn't linger so much that you can't enjoy the food. I get it. So that's defining what you do and how it tastes and different. So, But there's also quite a sort of big story behind where you are now. And so I wanted you to share to the extent that you want to, you know, what prompted your move from a small town like Hemingway to the big city in Charleston? What prompted my move from the small town of Hemingway to the big city of Charleston? I'd have to say that would be a Nick Pahakis. <laughs> my partner, Nick Pahakis, uh, invited me to come and do an event here in Charleston in 2010. And I did the event and the barbecue was so welcomed and so many people enjoyed it. And then he said, you should come to Charleston. And I looked at him like he was crazy. And I said, no. And then a little time passed and he asked me again. He said, you should open a place in Charleston. They love you here. And again, I said, no. And the third time he said, man, why don't you come to Charleston? And why did you keep saying no? Well, you know, I was living in my small town I had my family, my home, the business, everything was all good. I felt comfortable. I felt safe. Um, I, I just didn't I just didn't have the courage at first to even think about coming to Charleston. No, I think you write in the book uh, quite eloquently about which is harder for people who don't come from smaller places to understand that there's 
a worldview that that's sort of imposed on you. And it's not imposed by any one person, but it's imposed by the circumstance that you you just don't have, like if you grew up in New York City where you think, oh, the world, we own the world and we can do everything. You just have a different viewpoint of what your options are. No? Yeah, I did. I did have a viewpoint of knowing that my I felt good in Hemingway. And when the options came to Charleston, I visited Charleston a lot before I even decided to come down here. And finally, I said, I'm going to take the chance. I think I can do this. And, you know, here we are. So how long has it been now since you made the move to Charleston? I moved to Charleston uh, in 2016. It's been about five years now. And uh, I'm, I'm happier than I've ever been. And you managed to, you and Nick opened the restaurant, the, the first of your restaurants pre-pandemic. Is that right? Were you open for about a year before everything changed again? We, we opened in 2017 in the Charleston restaurant. And we opened in 2019. So pre-pandemic in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, we opened in 2019. Oh, okay. So you had the the Charleston was was well up and running. And what happened sort of pandemic? Were you able to pivot fairly well or has it been really rough? You know, we were able to pivot very well during the pandemic. We were uh, very afraid in the beginning of what may or may not happen. We were very concerned about our staff maintaining their livelihoods, maintaining their families. We're very concerned about um, making sure that our staff can eat even get a get a meal. So in the beginning, we set things up to make sure that two hours a day, every employee we had would come in those particular two hours, grab a meal for their family and take it home. And because we have a drive through, we were able to serve out of our drive through and people felt a little bit more safer coming to the drive through. And we we served almost everything out of the drive through for a while and to go. So we were lucky that the drive through was a big, big plus for us during the pandemic. And, you know, it, it felt even better to make sure that our staff was maintaining a meal every day. That was the best part about it, making sure that they were OK. Well, that's amazing to hear such a, a positive story. It's also kind of like the way you make barbecue and the fact that you have to plan ahead and you're not just like everything's made to order and, and there's a certain more casual style to it. Do you think that all benefited your your guys' ability to see things through? It 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 was a great benefit. You know, we 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 just kept our fingers crossed and hoping. And uh we we had to dial back all of our projections, of course. And we we played it by ear from day to day. We communicated a lot, you know, the PRG restaurant group, we communicated every day on a call to to make sure that we were all doing the best that we can following CDC rules, taking care of our staff and taking care of our, of our own families as well. And so now are you pretty are you back to sort of almost like pre-pandemic levels in Charleston and Birmingham or what's it what's it like right now? I would say that we're pretty much in the pre-pandemic uh numbers as far as, you know, sales are going. When the Netflix was released, that made a big difference. People knew who we were and they found out about the drive through and that kind of kept us going. Um, But right now, things are great. Uh, The lights are on. The disco ball is spinning. (laughs) You know, people are starting to get a little bit more comfortable again. That's great to hear. 
All right, we're going to come back and we're going to talk more barbecue with pitmaster Rodney Scott. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back. We're talking to pitmaster and restaurateur Rodney Scott about his new cookbook, Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue. So the book, I wanted to ask you, you uh, we've talked about your restaurants and how you became a pitmaster and, and what South Carolina-style barbecue is. So what made you decide, okay, now I'm going to write a cookbook? <laughs> wow, what made me decide to write a cookbook? First of all, one of the things that uh, kind of you know, influenced the decision of a cookbook was constant questions of when are you going to do a cookbook? In every event I would go to, when are you going to do a cookbook? And I would always answer, I don't know. Because <laughs> people know? saw you cooking a whole yeah. hog and they thought that looks easy. So I should just yeah. try that myself. Yeah. <laughs> when are you going to do a cookbook? And I'm like, writing a book is not easy if I, if I remember it right. <laughs> So one of, one of the things that kept coming up was your story. Your story is great. And you cook, you cook hogs. You should do a cookbook. So finally, one day, this one lady asked me, I was doing an event and I was a little inebriated. And she said, when are you going to do a cookbook? And I said, you know what? I'm going to do this freaking cookbook. <laughs> so, no, so no one can ask me that question. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I said to her, let me work on it. And honestly, I didn't, I never thought twice about it. And a little while later, you know, the idea came up again and, and, started talking to publishers and, and I was like, could, this could be a good calling, you know, this could be a good thing. And I could tell everybody how to cook a hog. And, you know, we, we made the right, right connections. We connected with um, my good friend, uh, Lolis, and we got together and, and we went to work on this book. And did you anticipate the, because the book is really pretty, maybe, I don't know if it's 50-50, but it's quite balanced between your story and recipes and sort of how to, is that what you envisioned in the beginning or did that come out of the process of working with Lola's? We did not envision this book going the way that it went in the beginning, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, I'm happy that it turned out the way that it did simply because in the middle of writing the book was when things kind of changed a little bit and we were in the process, me and Lola's, and we started talking about recipes and how I encountered them and where I encountered them. 
and the people that they were connected to. And that kind of led into me telling the story of my, my, my whole childhood all the way up. And when I started to, to, to discuss this with him, and I remember him saying, wow, this changes everything. And after I was done, it felt so good to say what I had to say and to write what we had to write. And it was so relieving. And I said, let's, I want to put that in there. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to ask you is what in making that decision. And, and for those who haven't yet read it, the book is quite confessional about your hopes and dreams and fears and, and some of the, the breakdown in your relationship with your dad that happened with your success and departure for Charleston. What did you hope that people would take, you know, from your story? I was hoping that people would take from my story their own personal experiences to go ahead and say what's on your mind and not carry these heavy loads around on your shoulders because that's what I was doing. Mm. I was carrying the load of not having a great relationship with my family. I was carrying the load of not having the, the confidence to move out of Hemingway to Charleston. And I needed to tell somebody. And, you know, I spoke on it before, but I never really told the story completely. And in telling that story, I was hoping that it would help people understand that I'm just like you. You can get past this if you can just have these conversations or you can just find the silver lining in this dark cloud. You can keep going, following your dreams. Everything will be fine. And I was hoping to inspire people that, like like the book says, every day is a good day. That was my that was my goal to inspire people to understand that every day is a good day. And from what you just said, there must have also, as we were talking about that moment where you were, were being a pit master changed from a chore to this might be strong, a joy, but let's just say when, when did the, your, your motto of every day is a good day. Do you kind of remember when you made this conscious decision to look at things differently? You know, I think I made this this decision to say every day is a good day. I must have been about 34 years old, 35. And I was trying to build a house. And I went to the bank and the bank turned me down. The guy gave me his card. And he, he they kind of led me to believe that I would get the loan. And then when I got there, it was like, no. And then being denied, I looked at that banker and I smiled and I said, every day is a good day. And I took his card and I put it on my refrigerator I was living in a mobile home and every time I went out the back door, I looked at refrigerator every day and I looked at his card and I said, every day is a good day. And I noticed the more I said it, the better I felt. And I, I constantly would say it every time I would see people and say, every day is a good day. And it made me feel so good. I felt like, let me pass this energy out when I go. Let me control the room with this energy when I enter. Let me control everybody that's around me to understand that. Every day is a good day. <laughs> I love it. I feel like you need, I have, I have some friends who have a podcast called Happier in Hollywood, but it's about like kind of a life coach thing. And they're super big on mantras. I'll give a shout out to, uh, they're called Liz Craft and Zara Thane. It's called Happier in Hollywood. You seem ideal because a lot of what they talk about is how do you elevate your professional goals to where you want them to be? And they really believe in in mantras. And I think I think you just gave proof of concept there. Absolutely. Love so that was in, that was in, so did you ever build that house or did you get your house in Charleston? I built that house. I bu- it took me four years that I never got that loan. And I found a way to, I had this theory years ago as, as early, early twenties. I said, I wonder if I buy a brick every day, will I have enough to build a house in a few years? 
just one brick. And I ended up building that house. It took me four years. I never got the loan and built the house. And I closed on the house in 2015. It was when I got the CO, the certificate of occupancy to go in, in 2015. And here it was, things started to crumble. And in 2016, I'm living in an apartment trying to open a restaurant in Charleston. So I built that house. It felt good. And I had to sell that house in 2019 and ended up buying another house here in Charleston. And I am so, so happy with all of the decisions, knowing that I accomplished the goal of building that house and the 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 road leading up to building that house has given me more confidence. And like I said, I'm super happy about all of that journey. There's just so many elements of your story that continue to inspire. So I'm, I'm so glad you wrote that book. I'm so glad you built that house. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't go back to the book for a second and ask you. So I think for a lot of people building a home pit they might fantasize about doing it. I statistically yeah. bet not that many people are going to try it. I bet some will. And even tackling a whole hog at home is a pretty big uh, journey. I think even you'd admit you you kind of need two people to do it, at least at moments. Yes. So I thought maybe you could talk about some of the other elements of uh, recipes, maybe as the, a starting point to try for a, for a July 4 summer uh gathering what would you steer people toward from the book to check out you know in the rodney scott's world of barbecue we do show you how to build a a pit and not everybody has the space or the equipment or the patience to build all of this so we had smaller recipes in there like the rib recipe is great you know you can do it on a smaller grill it's great for uh your entertaining your fourth of july crowd um we also have the burger recipe that's in the book that's great Uh, We did some salads in there. The tomato salad is in there. We have the John T. Wedge salad in there. Um, For those of them that want to eat a little bit lighter, the smoked chicken. And what's special about, because I used to go have an iceberg wedge in Palm Springs all the time, but what what is John T's, what's the spin on that, on your wedge salad? You know, the John T. Wedge salad is kind of just paying respect to John T. period. You know, the first salad that I ever really ate Second salad, I'm sorry, that I ever really ate because I'm not a huge vegetable eater or salad (laughs) eater. But it was uh, the wedge salad. And me and Nick made the wedge salad together the first time I ever had one. And uh, I said, man, this is great. And it has bacon on it. You know, this (laughs) this is amazing. And and, and when we when we had it on on the menu, it was we wanted to put in the book. Instead of a wedge salad, let's let's put it to John T. Edge, because if it wasn't for John T. that introducing me to Nick, who knows where we would have been. So we we came up with the John T. Wedge. And so is that a version of that on the menu at your restaurants? We do. We did have a version of that on the menu at the restaurant. Um, we if if you're we'll try to make it for you if you're in there, if you're special, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll try to look out for you. It's on the secret menu. Yeah. You got to know. You got to know who to ask. But, uh, you know, all of that's in the book. And we also have a smoked catfish recipe in the book that's super simple, still can be done on a smaller, smaller scale. But we, we just kind of wanted to, to have an all around option with barbecue, along with the experiences that I've encountered, you know, in on my journey through barbecue 
to make sure everybody can have fun when they're entertaining at home or just cooking for their own family at home. And what's your, I, I don't want to, I want to go a little deeper on the recipe so people get a, a flavor for it, as bad a pun as that is. The, so what's in your burgers or ribs or what's your take on it that, that, that is a little bit different or distinct? You know what makes the burgers, the ribs and everything distinct in that book? Everything is done almost with rod sauce. The Rodney okay. sauce, which is the vinegar and the pepper base. And there's the element of our Rodney's rib rub that's in the mix of almost all of those recipes. So it's you, you, you have options there. So there's a touch of rod sauce associated with the burger, uh, the Rodney's rib rub on the ribs, the Rodney's rib rub on the catfish. So many things are associated with our, our rib rub and sauce throughout the book. And that's bringing that South Carolina style that you were talking about into it. That's bringing the South Carolina style into it. Correct. Yes. Even and the I, <laughs> and I, I was going to going to say that um, what I'm amazed at is like your I mean, maybe you held something back, but like your secret sauce recipe is in there and yes. there, there's a certain generosity in doing that. So what was your was your thinking like that's that's me. So it has to be in there and I just have to take the risk or what was that hard? No, I, I saw it, I, you know, to share the love, I said, I'm going to put it in here. Now, for example, this is, how, first of all, I love vehicles. I love trucks, cars, custom vehicles. If I tell you how to build a car, are you going to go out there and build it today? My point exactly. Well, so, probably not. Our car, cars are slightly bigger <laughs> undertaking than a sauce, but all right, no. I, take, <laughs> I take your point. That was my example. But yeah. uh I just said, if I tell them how to make it, you know, they can make it at home if they want, or they can come to the restaurant and enjoy it already done. So I, I just felt I was okay with it just to, to share the recipe in the book. And uh, just, just for all of the folks that don't travel a lot, for the, for the folks that don't come to Carolina, they can pick up this book and make the sauce for, for themselves at home. Well, I think most chefs have this unbelievable, you know, generosity that I think is reflected. But I just think in this case, like in your case or in the case of other pit masters or barbecue people, like sauce is such a big part of it. I think there's sort of extra generosity. But I'm also thinking back to what I said at the beginning of the show, that there's a certain technique and touch that I was curious, like, have people had brought you there making your sauce and you've tasted it and felt it was exactly the same? Or is it pretty? Is there little tricks that you do that maybe you're not even conscious of doing that make you still make it hard to like exactly replicate your sauce? No, I haven't had people to bring any sauce to me to taste it yet. But um, I I was pretty open with the recipe and uh, the techniques. There's, there's nothing hidden. No, 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 nothing. I'm not hiding anything else other than <laughs> the regular. <laughs> oh no, I wasn't trying to catch you out. I was, I was more thinking about the fact that even when there are recipes, like I've worked with, with chefs and cooking teachers and been like, you can give the same six people the same damn recipe right in front of you. And they will all produce something that is slightly different. Absolutely. That would I, I've I've seen that done. Um, I've witnessed people doing things different, uh, but I don't have any other secrets to anything other than smile or hold your left foot up while you're doing it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, no, that's exciting. I, I like I like that you've you put it all out there to share and spread it far and wide. And I think on that note, I want to talk to you a little bit about how you cooked in these barbecue competitions around the world. And so you went from Hemingway to places all over the world. And I think it's quite fascinating that to me, barbecue as we know it in America is really distinct. It feels very American. And even though like on Chef's Table and stuff, they've talked about these different traditions. I was curious where you netted out after all of the experiences you have, if you really do feel like the barbecue as you do it and as others in the States do it, is a real American original? Or did you find that your viewpoint was changing through sort of the global exposure? I think I think barbecue is, is recognized all over the world as, you know, the one common thing that so many people enjoy, of course. And I think a lot of people have known it for being in the American South. And I've, I've gone to other countries and seen similar styles done, but they all pay so much respect to the American South that it's unbelievable. I was in uh, Melbourne, Australia, and it was, I was walking through this huge crowded area. And this one young lady stopped me and said, you got to be from America. And I think I know who you are. <laughs> and she said who I was. And I, and I said, yes, I am. I'm, I'm Rodney. And throughout the day, I walked through the city and people would recognize you and they knew that you were American. And some of the first things they would ask when you were American was your Southern accent. If you were from the South, your Southern accent. And do you know anything about uh, barbecue? And and I thought that they were just kind of being, you know, uh, yeah, they're just saying that. But when it comes to America and barbecue in other countries, it is completely recognized and respected. I went to one spot and I was, I was a barbecue judge another time I was in Australia and they didn't know who I was at first and they announced my name. And all of a sudden they were like, you got an American guy from the South that's going to judge our barbecue. And, and the tone changed in the room with so much respect and handshakes. Um, I, I think barbecue is universal, but it's so highly respected in the South, the Southern part of the United States, that whenever you go anywhere in the rest of the world and, and they know that you're from the South, they ask you about barbecuing. That's really great to hear. Thank you for that. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back and we'll get Rodney's Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. Let us know what you think about today's show. Want more Julia? Then make sure you're signed up for a deep dive into her life and legacy. Join the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, me, and Julia's great nephew, Alex Prudhomme, as we celebrate Julia's birthday in conversation with Julie Cohen and Betsy West, the Oscar-nominated filmmakers of RBG, for a first look at their new documentary about Julia. You can participate from wherever you'll be on August 15. To register, go to sbce.events. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. 
Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Rodney, what's your Julia moment? Wow, my Julia moment. So my Julia moment starts from the night before. I'm at work and I'm working all night long cooking hogs. At this point, I'm still living at my mom's house. And my mom and dad were at the the store all day. So I leave work, must be around, I don't know, 9 or 10 a.m. that morning. And I go home and I don't take anything to eat. And I always turn the TV on. The TV's on. I'm hungry. I got to go find me something to eat. I wake up and there's this very tall lady on TV, seemingly very tall to me. And she's making food. And I'm like, who is this person? And she's cooking and and she's demonstrating. And I'm like, wow, this lady's cooking on TV. I don't know who she is, but I've never seen her show. Uh, I, I wish I could cook on TV. I wish I had some food in this house right now and immediately turned the TV off to go get something to eat. (laughs) Finding out who Julia was later on, I'm like, oh, my goodness, this lady is highly respected. She's amazing. She's always on TV because I didn't remember which channel it was. And she was demonstrating food and so many people know and respect her because she has this huge reputation for what she does. And I said, man. Making food on TV and getting recognized and appreciated. That's amazing. That'd be cool if I could do that. I mean, never knew that it would come to this, but here we are. So my Julia moment was me waking up, spotting this lady on TV cooking, saying she's cooking on TV. That's amazing. I am super hungry. I'm going to turn it off and go get something to eat. And all I can remember was this tall lady with this unique voice demonstrating food on TV. And I would always try to find her again. And I only could find her in different different little places here and there on TV. And then years later, you're on TV and you're cooking on TV. Wow. Amazing. I'm a little sorry that I didn't stay hungry a little longer and watch Miss Julia in that first moment. <laughs> Well, I think she would have been very pleased that that you seeing her led you right to go get something to eat and and even more pleased that you've pretty much devoted your life to cooking for others. Yeah, the way that she was doing things to me that day, because I stood in front of the TV to turn it off. And as I stood there to turn it off, I was watching her doing the breakdown of everything. And I was like, well, all we do is put, you know, the seasonings on and we mop it. And I was like, you know, I'm hungry. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> that was my Julia moment. You know, it, I didn't pay a lot of attention to what she was doing. I just watched that she had it laid out. She was cooking. She, she was seemingly very tall and had a unique voice. But you can still remember that moment. Yes, I still remember that moment. I can tell you where the TV was at my mom's house in that moment, that afternoon. And do you think, was it before at 11, your dad had you cook the whole hog for the first time or it was after that? It was after 11. I must've been about, uh, I want to say I must've been about 19. Yeah. 18 or 19 years old. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing your Julia moment and, and thanks very much for coming on and joining us and, and talking to us about your journey and your new book. Oh, man. Thanks for having me. The pleasure is all mine. And thanks, everyone, for listening. 
You can track down Rodney's Barbecue on RodneyScottBBQ.com and follow Rodney Scott's BBQ on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The cookbook is Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue by Rodney Scott and Lola's Eric Eli. Out now from Clarkson Potter. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. Follow the foundation. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T Shulkin on Twitter. The latest on the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience is on SBC.events and you can follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram. The Julia Child audio clip from the French chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks as always to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We are on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>